Good evening. We begin tonight's bulletin with breaking news. As we go to air, Ukraine's capital is being rocked by several explosions right in the centre of the city. Kyiv hasn't been struck by missiles for many months. Today's assault seen as Russia's retaliation for a recent strike on a bridge in Crimea. We begin with breaking news from Ukraine, where several explosions have rocked the capital, Kyiv, and several other cities. The state emergency services says there have been deaths and injuries, although it's not clear yet how many. Well, I think we're going through at least the third wave of rockets coming in right now. Uh, there have been many, many explosions in Kiev this morning. I've just in the last minute or so counted three rumbles, not too close to where we are at the moment. The reported Russian strikes are the first on Kiev in many months. On Monday, October 10th, as Ukrainians were commuting to work in the country's capital, Kiev, Russian forces launched a despicable long-range attack on civilian targets all across the city. The death tolls mounting, both in Kyiv and a raft of other Ukrainian cities hit all over the country, and at present, the total number who perished in the attack is unknown. It's the sort of panicked response that military planners have come to expect from Vladimir Putin when he's backed into a corner. After a key bridge linking Crimea, the territory that Putin illegally annexed in 2014, with Russia was severely damaged days earlier, Vladimir Putin is clearly losing his cool. But another important thing happened on October 10th, too. Belarus's illegitimate authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, formally committed to entering the conflict in Ukraine on the side of the Russians. Belarus has ordered its troops to deploy with Russian forces near Ukraine in response to what it perceives as a clear threat of attack from Kiev and its Western allies. On Saturday, Belarus's allies in Moscow blamed Kiev for an explosion on the bridge connecting Russia to the illegally annexed peninsula of Crimea. Now, President Alexander Lukashenko has accused Ukraine of planning attacks on Belarusian territory. Tell the president of Ukraine and other insane people that the Crimean bridge will seem like nothing if they touch just one meter of our territory with their dirty hands. In the first episode of this series on the intersection, conflict in Europe, we delved into the migrant crisis being deliberately orchestrated by Lukashenko on the Poland-Belarus border. And today, we're going to sit down with the rightful president of Belarus, Svetlana Chikhanovskaya, who I caught up with two hours after Lukashenko announced he would enter the war. President Chikhanovskaya currently lives in exile in Vilnius, Lithuania. And when we sat down, she'd just returned from the UN General Assembly and then a series of meetings in Europe with Western leaders, including French President Emmanuel Macron. The opposition candidate in Belarus's presidential election has fled the country after she disputed an election result she claimed was rigged. Svetlana Tikhonovskaya said she went to Lithuania for the sake of her children as her supporters continued angry protests in the capital, Minsk. And we addressed directly the question now dominating the coverage of the Ukraine war. Could this be the moment when Lukashenko's grip on power loosens just enough for the organised opposition to overthrow the regime. Good afternoon, Madam President. How are you? Ah, 
more or less. You know, I never know how to answer this question. How are you? I understand that I have to be polite and say I'm fine, thank you. But actually, it's not the situation. Oh, uh, now look, it's it's clearly quite a poignant moment for us to have this conversation. Um, with the news just breaking that that Lukashenko has committed troops to the conflict in Ukraine, and also the uh, the retaliation from the Russian armed forces. Um, uh, you know, across all of Ukraine today. And I definitely want to get into that. Um, but I thought uh, if it was okay with you, we might start off just for the benefit of of uh, my listeners with um, a bit of background um, and then dive into those details uh, afterwards. Would that work? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, great. So um, first of all, uh, Madam President, I'd love if, if you could just give us a an abridged summary of how you came to be the the leader of the democratic opposition in Belarus. You know, uh, back in 2020, uh, before 2020 actually, I was an ordinary woman, housewife. I was bringing up my two children. And uh, this was my husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, who decided to uh, interview Belarusian people about uh, their life in our country their life in, about, in Belarus, about uh, their thoughts, about politics, about corruption in Belarus, about what's going on, actually. And uh, people uh, saw that a brave person appeared uh, in our country who actually wasn't afraid to uh, tell the truth. You know, just imagine our country lived for 27 years under dictatorship and all those who uh, dared to oppose dictatorship, they were put in prisons, they disappeared or even killed. And uh, when my husband, you know, became, uh, started his YouTube blog uh, asking people about the situation, he became enemy to this regime. Of course, he was detained for the first time, for two weeks only. But when uh, he was asked by Belarusian people to uh, run for president, you know, he declared, yes, I'm going to, to fight with the dictator in this presidential campaign. Uh, he immediately was detained for the second time. And he didn't manage to give his documents to Central Election Commission. And... Uh, yeah. I did it instead of him. I decided uh, to do this step for uh, to show my husband that uh, what he was doing is important for me as well. I wanted to support him uh, actually at the beginning, um, but when I saw that people started to support me, started to uh, uh, give the signatures for me, and uh, it wasn't only about Sergei, one uh, couple more alternative candidates appeared in our country. And like our people saw that, look, I'm not alone who wants changes in Belarus. Because mm -hmm. before everybody was frightened, we were discussing politics in our kitchens, you know, but uh, people at last saw each other. And this support grew and uh, people came to my team, my responsibility increased. Uh, and I had to move on, actually. You know, I also myself, it was my personal step of waking up. I started to think not only about my uh, my husband, but about, you know, actually the whole country. And uh, uh, we, uh, together with two of my uh, comrades, Veronika Tsepkala and Masha Kalesnikova, we uh, hold a pre-election uh, program. Just we promise people that uh, uh, we have to 
vote for Svetlana Tikhanovskaya as for guarantor of changes of new free and fair elections, and people voted for this. But uh, uh, regime, of course, wanted to stay in power. Lukashenko, uh, you know, didn't allow people, you know, to make their choice. And uh, mm-hmm. when after fraudulent elections, m- massive protests. Uh, took place, massive rallies on the peaceful rallies on the streets of uh, Belarus, Lukashenko uh, suppressed this movement with brutality. And since then, for two years already, pressions are going on in Belarus every day till now. Uh, regime detains 10, 15 people every day. At the moment, uh, more than 1,350 people are recognized as political prisoners, and the number is growing. Hundreds of thousands of people had to flee Belarus because of repressions, and actually people in Belarus now live in atmosphere of tyranny and terror. Yeah, and so that night of the election in 2020, You've been reasonably guarded in the past about what unfolded after you won the election. Lukashenko cracked down more brutally than he has in previous electoral cycles that he has also rigged. So are you able now to be any more candid about what actually happened that night and how, you know, you you sort of made the decision that you had to get out of there as you were watching the crisis unfold in Minsk? So actually, when uh, the next day after elections, I went to Central Election Commission to uh, print the paper that Belarus and people are against front elections. So I was met by uh, two people from KGB, and I was told that I have to leave Belarus because if I'm not, I will be detained. And so as my husband is already in prison, so my children will be put in orphanage and you will uh, not see for many, many years how your uh, children are growing. And uh, they uh, told me different things that I was betrayed by my comrades, that, uh, you know, uh, there were so many violence from Belarusians on the streets and you are the only who is responsible. So better you flee uh, Belarus and, uh, you know, just just disappear. And uh, at that moment, my internal mother won my internal struggle. And I decided to leave, but not to give up. I decided to continue my uh, my way, my path, uh, being in exile. But, but, you know, I have to say that uh, in previous um, uh, elections, you know, it was always Lukashenko's strategy to send... Belarusians uh, who oppose Lukashenko out of the country, and uh, he was sure that everything will come down as it was in previous years. But he underestimated the will of Belarusian people. He uh, lost connection with Belarusians. He didn't understand uh, uh, Belarusians who really, you know, decided that look, we are fed up, we are enough, uh, and uh, he didn't realize that new generation of people uh, uh, appeared, you know, who know how it is to live under dem- democracy, who can uh, study in democratic countries and universities, see how our pens- how pensioners live there. And it's absolutely achievable in our country as well, if only we have normal uh, government you know, who are taking care about people, who uh, allow businesses to develop. Uh, and uh, so he 
his usually Lukashenko's electorate was uh, older generation of people who still had nostalgia about Soviet Union, uh, you know, all that stuff, and uh, he really lost lost connection between generations. Yeah, and th- that's a, a convenient segue to to discuss the current status of the resistance. So, I um I recently interviewed Alexander Azarov. Um, the uh, the guy running Bipol, who of course you know, and and in our discussion, he described uh, quite a broad network, both inside Belarus and outside Belarus, of um, former and current security officers um, and various government officials who were um, orchestrating a you know a, a plan to overthrow the Lukashenko regime um, and you know I actually learned a new word in that uh, in that discussion paramoha um, victory I believe that translates to and it, what he described um, seemed to me like a very well organized resistance um, that was waiting for the right moment uh, to take action and the other thing I should add is that that they clearly identify you as the as the leader that they are looking to install when that happens what is your um, perspective on the current state of the resistance uh, inside Belarus is it is it a minority or a majority of people inside Belarus that you think would participate in the Peramoha plan? Or uh, do you have some other observations to offer on that? You know, our resistance is not only about Peramoha plan. Peramoha plan is uh, the part of uh, uh, huge changes, you know, in the future. Because, uh, you know, we, Belarusian people, for two years are experiencing uh, huge repressions. And, of course, uh, when sometimes our partners ask Belarusians, why are not you on the streets? Why aren't you, uh, you know, go out against Lukashenko? They don't understand how it is uh, to live uh, with the constant fear that you can be uh, kidnapped at any moment, when your uh, relatives uh, can be taken to prisons uh, to blackmail you, you know, and people now, you know, the energy of resistance is still in Belarusians. People in Belarus, they like at the moment as in the safe mode, you know, they are trying to keep their lives, to keep their freedom, to prepare, to prepare to one particular moment. Yeah, they're waiting for the correct moment to to take action. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is that there is this sort of latent um, desire to overthrow the regime inside Belarus. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I just want to uh, to explain why there are no beautiful pictures of massive rallies. You know, massive rallies will bring us new political prisoners, new people uh, fleeing Belarus, new hostages, but not real changes, you know, because still law enforcement is on the side of the regime because it's so comfortable for them. They can do any crimes, uh, commit any crimes without any uh, consequences for them. Uh, It's like a terroristic regime at the moment in Belarus, but people, people preparing. For these two years, we managed to build different structures inside Belarus, outside uh, Belarus, who are preparing for this uh, moment. All the alternative media have been ruined in Belarus. They managed to uh, restore their 
uh, activity, you know, in exile. For two years, we built a coalition of uh, political allies in different countries who are supporting our cause. It, it, it's also, uh, you know, contribution in in our in our future victory. Can, can I ask on that point, which which countries have been um, the most uh, forthcoming in terms of supporting this sort of activity? Which countries in Europe or elsewhere do you, do you feel are your strongest allies in, in overthrowing the regime? No, I have to say that almost all the countries of European Union are actively supporting us. Of course, those who are closer to Belarus, like Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, like Baltic countries, uh, United Kingdom, uh, Netherlands, um, yeah. the USA, you know, they're very supportive politically, uh, all the sanctions that have been imposed on Lukashenko, they also were um, imposed like by, by, the, by the whole European Union. So there were no countries who contradicted uh, this decision. Uh, some countries are very helpful in uh, assisting uh, civil society, in supporting media, NGOs, our human rights defending centers. You know, there are many, many ways how to uh, support civil society on the one hand, on the other hand, to create multiple uh, points of pressure on the regime, economic pressure, uh, political pressure. So we see this alliance of, of uh, countries who are, uh, you know, who are supporting us. Of course, um, uh, when the war in Ukraine has started, uh, all the attention now in uh, the events in our neighboring country, but we are fully support this, but still we have to remind uh, to our partners that, first of all, Lukashenko's regime and Belarusian people are two different things, that uh, Belarusians are against the war and we are, uh, you know, supporting Ukrainians as we can be in the situation we are. And uh, actually now we are looking for, uh, like, security guarantees or support of the independence of Belarus. So... Uh, Actually, uh, but if 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 speak about the strongest one, it's uh, Lithuania and Poland who are uh, very active politically and uh, very supportive to people who fled Belarus because of repressions. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So if if we look more to the news that's broken today, um, so the the escalating um, attacks on you know on Kiev and and other cities in Ukraine, but also. More importantly, the the formal statement from Lukashenko that Belarus will commit troops to the war in Ukraine. Um, what does this mean for the Belarusian opposition? So the situation is very difficult because on the one hand, we understand that Belarusian army doesn't want to fight against Ukrainians. Uh, there is no anti-Ukrainian moods. We, uh, you know, our soldiers understand that they can be sent to Ukraine to die for the ambitions of two usurpers only, not for their country. You, you know, and now uh, Lukashenko uh, uh, delivered this message that uh, Ukraine pose threat to Belarus. Uh, he wants to show to Belarusian people through propaganda means that, uh, look, there can be war, not because we want this war, but because Ukrainians, you know, can, can attack our country, you know, and, yeah. uh, but it's our task to say that um, uh, Ukrainian doesn't pose any threat to Belarus. It's a lie by Lukashenko to escalate his role in the war and 
justify his complicity in the terror against Ukraine. It also viola violates our national security. So we now we urge uh, Belarusians military do not follow criminal orders, refuse to participate in Putin's war uh, against our neighbors. And uh, actually, it's a difficult moment. And we uh, actually realize that uh, it's a kind of uh, a kind of propaganda because uh, this this uh, russian troops have always been on our territory and now the and now they are um I, I think i understand the point you're making that that the you know the, the the scale of the russian presence in belarus is increasing and it now looks like there will be a more direct um you know uh, participation on behalf of belarusian troops but i wonder whether you know, your, to your point about Lukashenko's excuse being just a propagandized um, version of reality, um, this is exactly the same thing in Russia, right? And the fact that in Russia it feels like the population is started to, you know, understand the lies that they've been fed um, and people are fleeing the country, that all happened when Vladimir Putin mobilised, you know, the, the reservists, when when Russian citizens were all of a sudden potentially going to be thrust into the conflict. And I wonder if the same thing may happen in Belarus, if, if perhaps, you know, by formally entering this conflict, this could actually be counterproductive to Lukashenko's aims. And maybe, maybe we're getting closer to that moment that you were talking about. So I, I guess my question is, does this, does this, do you think this works in Lukashenko's favour or against him? Or, to rephrase the question, does it work in your favour or against you? You know, I think that any order uh, for Belarusian army to participate in uh, this anti-Ukrainian war would be political suicide for Lukashenko. Because even those who are supporting uh, this person uh, you know, as as the core of the regime, you know, they are not supporting the war itself. And and Lukashenko knows that, right? And the reason that he's the reason he's doing this is because he's being he's got a gun to his head from Vladimir Putin. So like I wonder if he's being if he's being pushed in that direction um politically, you know, I, I just wonder whether this could be another reason why um unrest in Belarus grows. No, I just don't want you to justify Lukashenko in this event. I don't mean to justify him at all. Sorry if it came across that way. I mean that uh, he uh, has to obey to Kremlin's decision because he has to pay debts to Kremlin that Kremlin supported him back in 2020. Without support of Putin, Lukashenko wouldn't manage to, uh, you know, to survive politically. And now he doesn't care about Belarus. He doesn't care about our independence. You know, he is taking care only about his power, about his place, his throne. And uh, actually, he put everything on uh, the victory of uh, Russia in this war. And yeah. when Blitzkrieg failed back in February 2020, 2022, uh, of course, Lukashenko 
uh, see that his actions could bring to the full isolation of Belarus, full loss of the support of uh, uh, elites and uh, law enforcement and businesses, you know, and oligarchs in our country. So, of course, he wanted, he would like to escape responsibility. Yeah, no, I mean, look, and I don't, I don't mean in any way to justify his actions nor excuse them, but, but it just, it, it's interesting to see. I mean, he, he's being forced into a position which is less comfortable for him as an authoritarian, um, which I think is an important observation as to how this, this may continue to unfold. So if we change tack a little bit, um, you were at the United Nations um, two weeks ago, uh, and I'd like to ask a couple of questions about that. First of all, you know, the, the Belarusian foreign minister, you know, in inverted commas, because I don't think the regime is legitimate, um, but, you know, he was invited to speak at the General Assembly and you weren't. Um, in fact, you, you know, you attended as a delegate of, of, a, of a separate European country. Is that fair? Uh, so, first of all, we call such people from uh, so-called government so-called minister of... Uh, <laughs> That's a better way. The so-called foreign minister, I'll use that. <laughs> Actually, we uh, understand that uh, uh, Belarus is a member of UN. And uh, mm-hmm. now uh, people who seize the power, they represent like like officially, officially <laughs> uh, Belarus. And they had to, be, had to be invited there. They have right, you know, to be there. And... Uh, uh, our our allies helped uh, us, democratic forces, to be also presented uh, in uh, UN General Assembly because the voice of real Belarusians also have to be heard. Uh, UN can't invite us as a state. Yeah, so uh, that's fair. So I understand your response. It's it's more of a the logistics and the structure. Absolutely, but I see, but I see intention of uh, our partners to give us the voice. You know, to circumvent uh, all the restrictions. You know, to all the rules. Right. But as I say, non-conventional times need non-conventional decisions, and this political will you know, to invite Belarusian democratic forces on the global event. Yeah. Um, What was the most important conversation that you had at the United Nations? Actually, we met with uh, the leaders of uh, several countries, uh, with different organizations, but uh, I had uh, important important messages for uh, all the countries that, um, first of all, divide Belarusian regime and Belarusian people, divide Russia and Belarus. We are not appendix of, of Russia. We are separate independent country and we need, uh, you know, to uh, have our path, you know, not, not dependent on the wishes of, of uh, Russia. That now um, follow two-sided approach to Belarus. First of all, it's uh, political, economical pressure on the regime. It's also your like moral obligation to make everything possible to press the regime enough for them to understand that nobody is going to legitimize Lukashenko to communicate to them, you know, to, to the representatives of the regime now, without solving uh, humanitarian and uh, political crisis in Belarus. Nobody is going to mm-hmm. talk to you until uh, demands of uh, people of Belarus will be fulfilled, that is, release of all political prisoners, stop of repressions, and dialogue about new um, free and fair elections uh, in Belarus. 
And the other yeah. side of this approach is uh, support to civil society. We really badly need energy. We need uh, understanding that uh, we are supported, that we are not abandoned, we are not forgotten, that Belarusian issue is crucial, especially now in this uh, regional crisis. Don't overlook the, the role of Belarus, because without free Belarus, there will be constant threat to Ukraine, to Poland, Lithuania, to you know the, the security of entire Europe. So don't forget about us. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Have you have you been approached by the American intelligence agencies? They're pretty good at fomenting insurrections and organizing resistance. The American, or you could say Western, I guess, if that's easier. Are those sort of discussions happening? Look, we uh, are organizing our resistance not with the help of uh, Western countries. This is what Lukashenko is selling to. Uh, Belarusians, that it's Western hand, you know, that uh, the Western mm -hmm. countries want to make coup d'etat in Belarus and so on. We just, we are not asking to make changes in Belarus instead of us. We are asking support to us, you know, to make these changes. So, uh, of course, we are communicating with different uh, organizations, uh, you know, uh, um, about the situation in Ukraine, about their uh, in intelligence, but still we are not conducted by anybody. Yeah, yeah. No, no, and I think that's a really important nuance that people should understand, which is why I asked that question. Um, because as you say, Lukashenko is spinning a false narrative um, around that. Um, if, if you think about, you know, the roadmap to, to you being, um, you know, out of exile and back in Minsk, Um, what do you think the most important things that need to happen, you know, on a, on a short to midterm view are? What, what would be the best things that could happen for your opposition to the regime? So, uh, actually, we are developing such a roadmap uh, of uh, closing, of uh, solving uh, humanitarian political uh, crisis in Belarus. And uh, uh, there are uh, main, like, steps that have to be done. The first signal that Lukashenko's regime is ready for negotiations and we are always offering negotiations because we actually believe in uh, peaceful changes uh, in Belarus. And uh, so the first signal will be stop of repressions in our country. If only a couple of days, there will be no detentions, if there will be no repressions, you know, maybe it will be a signal from regime that, okay, we are ready to talk. Yeah like a moratorium on the political um, arrests and stuff like that, even for a short period? Our side, we are communicating with personalities, with organizations, with countries to be inviting them to be mediators in our, uh, in our dialogue, in our negotiations. So if this signal uh, is given, so uh, then we can discuss uh, further actions like release of all political prisoners. Maybe some sanctions can be Uh, discussed, but we are asking our partners, uh, don't lift sanctions until all political prisoners are released and until the whole system is changing. Because if now, just imagine if, okay, thousands of political prisoners are released, sanctions are lifted, next day, 2,000 people will be detained. So we, we have to change the whole system. 
Uh, also, uh, no, uh, no restriction of uh, uh, alternative media uh, activity in Belarus, uh, withdrawal of Russian troops from our territory. And only in this case, you know, kind of dialogue can, can we are uh, planning to, to, yeah, to, to uh, work uh, more thoroughly through this roadmap to show this to our political partners. Because in any way, you know, there, there should be dialogue, there should be peaceful negotiations between regime and democratic forces. Also, we, uh, we uh, ask our uh, partners that these negotiations, it's not about Western countries and regime but negotiations between regime and democratic forces with people with mediation of third country. Don't do anything behind Belarus and people back. Do you, do, do you think that you'll ever address the UN General Assembly as the president of Belarus? You know, uh, I'm sure that the new president of Belarus who will be elected uh, on free and fair elections for sure uh, will be presented in UN General Assembly and will say the words of gratitude to all the countries that contributed in our common victory. And uh, I'm sure that Belarus of the future will be reliable uh, and peaceful partner to our countries, to our neighboring countries. But is that you being humble or you being uncertain? Do you, because that's a very humble response about a president of Belarus will address the UN General Assembly. But I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that your plan is going to work? Uh, look, the changes uh, will uh, be in, in our country sooner or later, for sure, because Belarusian people will not allow dictator to turn the page and to get back to business as usual. So the changes will come. And uh, of course, in, in the interest of uh, Belarusians, in the interest of democratic countries, the changes will come faster. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why I, you know, I, for what it's worth, what do I know, right? But I, I, I do sense that the news flow today, it seems panicked. It seems, it seems panicked on behalf of both Russia and, and Lukashenko's regime. Um, and I just, I'm very hopeful that it is, um, you know, the beginning of, of a set of events that will cause the, the sort of changes that you've described to happen. Um, and, you know, you never know, maybe we're closer than we think. Uh, you know, we can't uh, predict how, uh, how far uh, the victory is. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, in the nearest future, there will be a window of opportunities for Belarusians and we will uh, have to feel it and to take, make everything possible for, to get rid of the regime in that particular moment. This will happen. Of course, Lukashenko now is very fragile, very insecure, and we have to use this weakness of Lukashenko. And that's why we ask our partners, we ask Belarusian people, be uh, consistent uh, in your actions, be consistent in your policy. Now, any step back, uh, it will be, uh, uh, you know, it will be like defeat of us. We have to move forward because now uh, we, we have to use this weakness of the regime and in Kremlin and, and, and in Belarus. So stay united, stay decisive and stay firm. Mm. Well, I think you're an inspiration. Uh, and uh, and 
Look, the, the world is watching, and I think the world will be watching a lot more given what's happened in the last sort of 12, 24 hours. Um, so I wish you all the best, um, and I, I absolutely um, I, I, I admire what you're doing very much, um, and I think you're going to be successful. So thank you very much for taking the time, um, and I look forward to sharing this recording with you when I put it out in the next couple of days, and um, I'd love to speak to you again sometime in the future. With pleasure. Okay, that's it for episode two of Conflict in Europe. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. Stay tuned for the next episode of Conflict in Europe coming out at the end of October. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.